Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon to our session in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. The price of modern life is depression and loneliness. Now, uh, as you would know, when we are thinking about the festival, we're thinking about interesting ideas, interesting speakers, and um, when I came up that, with the idea that I thought this was something, people, that we needed to talk about, the reaction from my colleagues was underwhelming, shall we say. So, personally, I was thrilled that you're all so enthusiastic about these rather, um, you know, depressing, potentially, topics. Um, and um, it, it's always really interesting to find out uh, when there are issues, things that really resonate with audiences. We're going to have a discussion here about these important ideas, then we'll be time at the end of the session for questions um, and discussion from you. There are two microphones in the auditorium, and at a certain point I'll ask you um, to, to hop up if you have a question. Let me introduce our speakers. Anne Mann is an Australian writer and social commentator. She's the author of Motherhood, an autobi a memoir, So This Is Life, and most recently, The Life of I, The New Culture of Narcissism. She is also the author of a wonderful essay that was published in The Monthly a few years ago, Only Connect, Loneliness in the Age of Freedom, which I would encourage you all to read if you haven't. Um, in, it's a wonderful introduction to that topic. David Baker is the Director of Research at the Australia Institute, where his focus includes the social outcomes of government policy. He's the author of an important 2012 report on loneliness, All the Lonely People. Gordon Parker, on my left is the Scientia Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales. He's a researcher into mental health, in particularly mood disorders like depression and bipolar disorder. Many of you would have heard of him as the founding director of the Black Dog Institute. Um, and um, in that capacity, he's had a major role in, I think, changing the way we think and talk about depression in these kinds of public fora. He's also the author of the autobiographical A Piece of My Mind. Before we start our discussion, I just want to read you... A, I've got a couple of quotes from Anne's essay on loneliness, which um, I thought wanted to share with you. The first one is, a friend once said something to me that stopped me in my tracks. It was this. The vices and virtues of each age are entangled with one another. It's not always possible to have one without the other. So... We're going to have a conversation today about the time we live in, about depression and loneliness, and try and unpick some of the ways in which these are connected or not. Um, we're going to start by really trying to define a little bit what we're talking about. Um, we, I think those of us who are um, like me and like many of you are not professionals in this field, rely on what we read in reportage or in other issues to, to get a sense of what's happening in, in some of these areas. And what we've seen consistently uh, is from news from the research and writing of people like this is that the incidence of depression is on the rise, the incidence of loneliness is alarming. We understand terrible stories like people who have died and have not been discovered for several days afterwards. 
And what I really want to do by drawing on the expertise of our panel is examine some of those assumptions that we make and some of those assumptions that I've certainly made in thinking about this session, which is, are these huge problems? Are these problems that are increasing? Are these things that we really need to deal with now? Um, and I want to start by, uh, start by asking Gordon Parker to talk to us about what the situation is, how he sees the situation in Australia in relation to the incidence of depression. Uh, the first thing I think is to say that depression is a very encompassing word and it encompasses normal depression. Uh, we all get depressed, so at one stage we did a study and said to people, do you have times when you feel depressed, your self-esteem drops, you're self-critical and you feel like giving up? And 96% of people said yes. So there's normal depression and then we have so-called clinical depression. And in response to your question, um, it's clear that there have been increasing reporting of rates of depression going higher and higher and higher. Um, and there's no doubt that the rates, when they're formally measured, have been going higher, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years. In relation to clinical depression, firstly, we don't know really how to define it. Uh, we have some loose parameters. It's more severe, it's more persistent, it's more likely to cause people to want to seek help but we don't have any pristine definition. And what has happened is the American classificatory DSM system has since 1980 progressively lowered and lowered and lowered the threshold for meeting criteria for clinical depression. So the first issue in response to the question I would suggest is that instead of looking at it as if there's a true increase in depression, what we've had is a new definition of depression that has brought in so much normative or normal depression into the clinical domain. And that has been uh, a consequence of many, many factors. Uh, one, for instance, would be advocates in the area wanting to expand their territory, uh, pharmaceutical industries perhaps wanting to expand their territory and so on and so forth. Secondly, I think there are some other factors that are relevant. Now, sort of try and wrap it up pretty quickly. Destigmatisation has meant that many people who have had serious depression in the past and would never have talked about it now do it far more openly. Uh, and I think that there is probably a third uh, minor factor that there may have been an increase in some clinical disorders. So one that I think stands out is bipolar 2 disorder, uh, which has always been with us, but where the lifetime prevalence was pretty low, but is now up to about 6%. And then the final thing I'd say in, re in reply to the question is that we have as I suggested earlier, great difficulty in distinguishing between clinical depression, normal depression, despondency, demoralisation, ennui, uh, what Fred Dagg called the O'Henrys, um, and a couple of other states. And so we have to be very careful um, and specific about what we're actually talking about, whether it's clinical or normative depression. So if we're talking about clinical depression, um, so... If we're, you know, in this conversation we're saying we, we're not really talking about people, um, the kind of sadness called, caused by sad things that happen in life. But if we're talking about clinical depression, what do you think the incidence is increasing? I, I'm not persuaded that it is. Um, we can go back to St Paul to the Corinthians who described the depressions that came from God because they just couldn't be understood otherwise. And these were the biological depressions. And the rates of what we now now largely called this melancholic depression, look as though they've probably been pretty similar over the centuries. 
And then we have, if you like, environmentally caused depressions. And again, in Western countries, there's really little to support a, a great increase. Again, as, as I said earlier, it's mainly the way in which the definitions have mm. dropped lower and lower and lower to become, in fact, quite nonsensical. Um, for instance, DSM-5 was proposing a new category where you just needed two minor symptoms. It was called mixed anxiety depression. Wonderful acronym which comes out as MAD. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look at the first condition in DSM-5, it's a new condition in the depressive disorders. It's called disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. It's a depressive disorder but none of the criteria actually mention the word depression you basically have to have regular temper tantrums. So we've got some very bizarre con conditions included in, in, in the clinical depressive domain. So most of it, I think, is artefact of poor definition. And as a consequence of their poor definition, that leads to something not in your question, but which worries me immensely. If, in fact, depression has been homogenised into there is clinical depression, the consequences are that people end up getting the treatment uh, that's largely shaped by their background training or discipline rather than anything that's specific to the constituent depressive disorder. And that's been another uh, dreadful consequence of the last three decades of just talking about clinical depression as if it is an entity, some sort of homogenous condition. In DSM, major depression, they have minor as well, Major depression can be broken up into 319 constituent disorders. Who does that and who would want to do that? So if we look at that question, that, that your concern about the treatment then relating not to the person's condition but to the background of the practitioner. So by that, for example, if somebody um, diagnosed with, with some kind of depression, if they're seeing a psychiatrist, they'll have one kind of treatment. Yes. But the same patient potentially, if they went to see a psychotherapist or a psychologist, would then presumably be looking at some kind of talking therapy. Yeah. Yeah, so regardless of what they might ha have needed if they'd received a more sophisticated diagnosis. Since 1980, uh, major depression has taken over the territory. So, so many people go and see somebody and they're told, you've got major depression. They think, well, that's very informative, that's very, very profound. But imagine if you went to your GP and you were told that you had major breathlessness. You would think, I don't really understand that. What you would expect of your GP would be that he'd say you've got asthma or pneumonia or pulmonary embolus, and you'd then know that the treatment would be more rational. So you might get an antibiotic or you might get a bronchodilator if it was asthma or anticoagulant if it was a pulmonary embolus. And what we have is this very dumb homogenising model. You have major depression, and then, with whatever it is, major or minor depression, you go and see a doctor, almost certainly you'll get a drug. You go to see a psychologist with the same type of depression, you'll almost certainly get a psychotherapy. You go to see a counsellor, you'll almost certainly get, get counselling. You go to see a lady wearing a caftan and you'll get crystal therapy. <laughs> and basically, we've got this really dumb model where that aphorism that if all you've got is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, is operating to a high degree. And this is what really concerns me about the management of depression these days. For instance, if a woman has a breast lump, she doesn't want to know whether it's major or minor. She wants to know whether it's malignant or benign. And she wants to know the treatment, whether it's going to be surgery or radiotherapy. And we have got this completely different model where the diagnosis is imprecise, 
the actual treatment is illogical and shaped by the background discipline and training. And you can imagine if you've got a non-specific diagnostic model, non-specific treatment, then the risks are huge. You get lots of people given loads of medications which are inappropriate when they do much better with psychotherapy or counselling. And conversely, you get people with desperately severe biological disorders who would do well with medication and have years of sitting next to a therapist who just meanders and meanders very nicely, perhaps, but without any great effect. We'll come a little bit later in the conversation to what we need to do and also perhaps to some of those um, other things about our lives that uh, might lead us or predispose us to various different kinds of... Well, I'm very hesitant to use the word depression now without any qualifier, but <laughs> various forms of the D word. Um, but before we move further into the conversation, what do you think it, the effect is on individuals of this extensive use of major depression? Um, you know, in the sense that people who may really be have something that is that is um, um, not of you know n not of that level of significance, or not really requiring to be medicalised. What is the effect of telling people you have this serious condition? I think it's not quite as severe as we might uh, uh, think. Most people actually don't go and seek help from a general practitioner or a psychiatrist unless there's something pretty significant. They're smart enough to know that you just don't go along with minor worries. But the greater implication of concern is getting inappropriate therapy. So just very quickly, I once saw a very perfectionistic teacher who'd been at a school for 30 years and he was publicly demeaned by the headmaster. He was put on an antidepressant by a GP, then he had four more. We saw him three years later and he had 23 differing medications and a course of ECT. His depression was no better and he had some memory problems from the ECT. He would have been in much better space if he'd been prescribed an apology rather than antidepressants. <laughs> so the point I'm making is that we have, if you've got a dumb model, then you risk a dumb application. And we have the, the biggest concerns I have of inappropriate treatment being either, as I said earlier, over-treatment with medication when it's not required, or conversely, people with severe biological disorders who would do brilliantly on medication and not getting it. Mm. Let's move on to loneliness, as we sit here in such a lovely social environment. Um, David, can you tell us about the findings of your report? Really what you know from that research about the the baseline of rates of loneliness, kinds of loneliness and so on in Australia? Sure. The report relied on a longitudinal study uh, over 10 years, which meant we could track the same people each year and the questions they were asked included 10 that went to the issue of social support, um, including an explicit question, are you lonely? And the, the data showed that in any given year, one in 10 Australians uh, experience feeling of loneliness. So in any one of these rows, there's two or three people who are feeling lonely. Uh, given that we're all here talking about loneliness and depression, it's a, a skewed audience, but... <laughs> Tracking it year by year, we found that over that 10-year period, three out of 10 Australians had experienced a period of loneliness that they reported to the survey. Now, the, the factors that uh, influence the demographic factors that uh, showed up in that uh, research showed that people who live on their own 
were twice as likely to report being lonely. And while that's a key factor and everyone picks up on it, it's important to point out that being alone isn't the same as feeling lonely. And that might be something we discuss uh, further on. But it's important to make that distinction, and especially when we come to trying to understand the causes of loneliness. Uh, there's also demographic factors around males and females. For males, through the, the life course, the rates of loneliness increase as they get older, or the numbers of males who will report feeling lonely increases. But for women, the pattern appeared more to be a U-shape. So younger women showed higher rates of loneliness, but then that decreased over time until uh, around midlife when it started to increase uh, again towards older age. It was, I think it's very interesting, some of those demographic factors, because some of the information that you found, I found slightly surprising, um, which was the prevalence of loneliness among men at, between their 20s and their 40s. That that was a, you know, that's not a time where we would, you know, with, with you know, looking at it from the outside, that's not a time where we would think of it. But that was something that you found, uh, and I think that was potentially related to patterns of living alone, but also the different ways that men and women relate to their social networks. Well, that's the, you, know, you can draw those conclusions from the data, but certainly one of the key determinants of a change for men was uh, when they had children. And so, if they had children, that the incidence of loneliness increased for them and for women it decreased. And <laughs> as your question suggests, Anne, <laughs> Is it that, but there are social factors for that. You know, if you're, for, for women who have children, there's a lot of social structures out there that they can access, that it might be mother's groups or it's preschools or there's a number of facilities where they're meeting people in the same situation as themselves. And so there's a, potentially there's a support network that they can draw on. Whereas for men, you know, if their social, uh, social outreach or outlets have been, Going, going to the pub or playing golf or going to the football, if there's, if there's an increase in the demands on them uh, at home, then those uh, possibilities for social interaction are reduced. That was one of the absolutely fascinating things was the prevalence of loneliness among people with children, which those of us who live in houses that appear to be stuffed with people of all ages, you think, how on earth could that happen? But, and, and, and I mean, it's interesting to think of that in, in relation to um, the, the other determinant, like people living alone, that can be correlate with loneliness. So the sure, idea of people in the middle of a family feeling lonely is an interesting one. Well, if you're at home with kids, and as I am, then adult conversation is still adult conversation. <laughs> and so if you've got kids or you're living on your own, you might be just as isolated. Yes, and the fate of single, the fate of single parents was, a, was another thing. <laughs> And can you tell us about why you became interested in, in loneliness? I mean, I know that, that that essay that I referred to you wrote a few years ago, what made you start thinking about that issue? Uh, well, actually, my mother was lonely. Mm. Um, and I've been a very central um, uh, support person uh, through her life. Um, so, and there's something about someone you care about deeply uh, internalising their feelings where there is, uh, you know, you, you feel it um, very um, intensely. So, um, and so I've, I've, I've always been 
uh, kind of uh, sensitised to it, I suppose, and, and aware of it and constantly trying to combat it um, uh, in, in her life. But at the time that I wrote the essay, I'd actually had a terrible ankle injury and I was unable to walk for about six months, so I was uh, on the couch at home, um, still writing articles and so on. But I didn't see anyone. Now, as a matter of fact, you were talking about loneliness not being necessarily because you're alone, and that's true. I didn't feel lonely, um, but perhaps in my unconscious I did because um, I had my husband caring for me um, in a very um, tender kind of way. Um, he was first totally disconcerted, but then at me not being rushing around the household, but um, then he really looked after me in a lovely way. But I was really struck that when I spoke to uh, a friend of mine about, you know, she rang, and she immediately began... Uh, kind of um, uh, weeping and, uh, you know, with hysteria over what would happen to her if she um, had a broken ankle um, <laughs> because there was no one to look after her. And, you know, it was, it's like, um, you know, you prescribe an apology. It was, a tr it was a real question because she was lonely and she was, you know, so isolated. So that, you know, um, a writer always works in those ways, I guess, and I began thinking about it. Um, can I just say about some of the research, which, I mean, I've, I've looked at your um, report, not recently, but um, uh, in the, uh, a little while back, and I was really fascinated by some of the things, Anne, you were uh, noticing. But can I offer just a... I'll just fly this. It may not be correct, and <laughs> Gordon can be come in and be all precise um, and say that it's wrong. <laughs> but You've got to have a professor on every panel. Oh, I know, I know. But he, here's a thought. Here's some thoughts. When we form attachments, you know, to a young baby, uh, to each other, they are amongst the deepest and most um, wonderful but also destabilising of human experiences. Freud said in relation to falling in love um, that it makes us humble, and I love that, um, because suddenly, why are you humble? He said we actually pawn part of our narcissism when we fall in love, um, but the reason we're humble is because we come close to loss. As soon as you love someone, you are vulnerable to loss. It was someone um, who I uh, really uh, admire a lot. The writing of was John Bowlby, and he wrote about our attachment. It was a three-volume trilogy, attachment, um, separation, and then loss. And so these young men, um, both as fathers but also through the 20s, um, I think sort of young women too, I think one of the issues in the wider society is we now have um, what I'd call, you know, there's a... There's a kind of free market of love out there. There's a free market of bodies, you might say. Um, and the, you can move from one relationship to another. There are a lot of sexual relationships um, before you find a committed partner. Maybe you never do. But in each one of those endings, there is loss and there is sadness and there is something to be mourned. And there must be, and I know there is because I speak to such people, um, a greater and greater anxiety that there will be nothing to replace um, the last relationship. I remember, <clears throat> excuse me, I've, this is my third session today, so you'll have to put up with my croaky voice. Um, I remember a teacher who was <clears throat> deeply depressed. She'd had a relationship where she'd fallen in love with someone. Uh, she'd had a number of relationships that hadn't worked out, and this one seemed to be you know, the one that was going to work. It didn't work. Uh, she described this um, experience of when she came home holding it together for her classes, secondary teacher, and sinking into the living room in darkness uh, and onto 
uh, her knees and then, you know, collapsing. And she did this every night she, because this unbearable reality, this crisis of meaning um, she was facing. Uh, so, you know, when we're talking about loneliness, those men, they're also going through, I think, a lot of those experiences. So I'd be very interested to know how these serial, you know, the serial relationship pattern, um, the uncommitted pattern, um, which we sometimes jeer at, but we're not really looking at the, um, the vulnerable underbelly of it. And as for parenting, um, men often have their wife or partner as their best friend. Now, when that mother engages so fully with the infant, who have they lost but their best friend? In the mm. sense that I've known men to become quite depressed by her engagement, um, and I know there's postnatal depression and so on, but apart from those social structures, that, you know, strangely enough, um, he has actually lost something. And is he able to really express that and to go through that kind of um, mourning <laughs> for what he's had uh, at the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, um, this is your fault, Anne, my croaky voice. I know, voice. I know. Well, actually, uh, it's not my fault. It's, it's their fault. <laughs> but yes. they were so interested in narcissism <laughs> that we could not uh, deny them. And, and I would finally conclude, speaking of narcissism, um, <laughs> because a therapist came along to <clears throat> the Wheeler Centre and asked a brilliant question. And he said, look, I have people landing on my... Um, couch all the time or chair as it now is, and they are depressed, you know. Um, he said, actually, I don't think they're depressed. Um, in reality, they have been at the receiving end when I hear their life of a narcissist. So if you've been, you know, one way of putting it is this mild, kind of, he called it subclinical depression. The other way of putting it is they've been at the receiving end of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> the common sense approach. Um, so, so one thing that comes out of your discussion, like seeing what happens to people in a, in a series of uncommitted relationships, which really tells you that perhaps they're not, they're not actually, people are not actually able to have uncommitted relationships in the sense that if there is sadness and loss with the conclusion of each one, the idea that people can have, you know, the kind, those kind of relationships without commitment or investment uh, I, is I think it's tied true. to the vices and virtues that I was saying yeah, in that. Because, yeah. you know, in one way, do we want... I remember um, Tony Giddens, the, um, Anthony Giddens, the uh, great sociologist, saying, well, you know, about long-term marriage, which sounds so desirable, you know, his aunt or whoever it was, um, had been married to um, her husband for 60 years and she was miserable for every one of them. Um, <laughs> that, so that you, it is not, you don't necessarily have to idealise the past and particularly the patriarchal past for women and being forced to stay in marriages. But nonetheless, you need to see you know, the, the vices of this age and you, um, along with the freedom um, to be able to walk away and to um, uh, have relationships and perhaps learn more about yourself and the world. But also, um, you know, I do think out there there is a pattern of, um, of narcissism in relationships where people are not really caring for the other person and people feel quite um, robbed of a certain sort of richness. They feel not cared for. They feel that the balance is skewed towards the other person um, and yet they're kind of scrabbling um, for an explanation. Mm. But it's depleting and, um, you know, innervating as opposed to energising. Mm. Because actually all of us need to be cared for. We need to be nurtured. We need to be nourished and, in fact, therapy, um, I'd actually back 
therapy being funded much more than it is, not just um, uh, clinical psychology and not just psychiatry, but, you know, not jeering at the worried well, but seeing that actually in a modern society like ours, we need forms of paid therapy, which are a form of mothering. And the, female, the therapists are now often female, and that's, um, you know, it's a form of um, nurturing and care. And not only is that okay, it is, has been part of the human condition to need that since the beginning of time. Mm. But we would now be paying for it as a professional service rather than finding it in a family or a social network? I, I think sometimes we... I think lots of people do find it in their families and yeah. social networks. I don't, I, I don't think um, that, that this is everything. But I'm just saying, insofar as it may be well a pattern that you've um, uh, shown so um, clearly, to, you know, for people to be lonely and for this more, um, you know, that not the, the uh, major depression, but nonetheless the serious sort of problems... Um, I think that it's okay for them to be, you know, 10 therapy sessions that it costs so much and the rebate's mm. small. I actually think it's... And indeed, it may develop into something more serious um, if, uh, if it's not um, helped. So, I, you know, I think it's part of um, the modern world. I think we can romanticise and sentimentalise. There are a lot of families out there that also don't fully respond to the other. They, someone told me about how they were... Um, uh, they've tried to tell uh, their mother something and about their new job and um, she paused as if there was an irritant of even the, the conversation coming into her world and then just sort of kept talking over the top of her. <laughs> anyway, so there, there's lots of ways in which getting someone to listen with that exceptional attentiveness, um, you know, people need it and I think we should be, as a wealthy society, more generous than we are in yeah. supporting it. Yeah. Let's have a look at some of the things in what we see as modern life that have an impact on all of these issues. Um, and, you know, what is it about our society um, that um, contributes to these conditions, whatever the, whether their pre prevalence is exaggerated or not? One of the most interesting, I think, to start with um, would be for David to, to tell us a little bit about what you found out about loneliness and social media because the findings are quite uh, interesting, I think, and not necessarily expected or consistent. Yeah, the, the research at the moment around social media is quite mixed. There's one camp that says it's great, it's going to provide solutions for people who experience loneliness, and the other side is, well, it's actually more isolating because the circle that you, the virtual world that you go into is really restrictive around what you're looking for and it doesn't have the, the diversity of the, the real world, unless you go looking for it, of course, but when it's just you at the computer, it's easier to, uh, to constrain the, the interactions that you have to topics or issues. And... Our research ran a, next to the longitudinal study, ran the same questions um, and asked, also asked about social media use and, and also, interestingly, the idea of, of friends. You know, Facebook uses the term friends for people that you, that you connect with. And uh, while people who indicated that their responses indicated that they weren't feeling lonely, they had high rates of uh, friends on Facebook, for people who did uh, 
register as being lonely, there was, it was split into two groups, and those who were using social media found it of no use, and the other group were making reconnections. So it wasn't that they were making new friends, but they were reconnecting with uh, friends they've had previously that they may have fallen out of touch with, uh, but family as well. And so social media, it, it's about, re, I guess, as a solution to loneliness, it's about reigniting, uh, reigniting goes to the intimate relationships, but reconnecting with people who we've lost touch with rather than being able to expand our worlds. So using it as a tool to keep... A tool that supports relationships, I guess, rather than something that changes radically. Yes, your, that's yeah, right. And, yeah. and to an extent, it, it, starts to, it starts that process of self-verification. So you get people bouncing back ideas of who you are and your identity based on what they know and that mm. may be giving you the, the strength or resolve to then to progress out of that experience that you're in. Mm. There was a... You may know that one of the guests at the festival um, is Jan Tallinn, who is one of the co-founders of Skype. Um, and um, he... Uh, somebody who met him yesterday, when I introduced them and I, you know, mentioned what he was talking about the festival and that he involved with Skype, they just said to him, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so it's very interesting. With, with the, there are some technologies like that. Um, I know that that's the grandparent, grandchild... Uh, bonding engine of all time. Um, but there are some technologies that seem to have had a really... Um, uh, an impact on, on keeping, the, keeping relationships alive and, and, and vital in, in quite an interesting way. But the, there's the other side of it all, and uh, it reminds me of going out to dinner about two weeks ago. I went to a restaurant and there were eight people sitting at a table <laughs> and eight people it were individually on their little machine talking to somebody else and not one of them was talking to anybody around the, the table itself. It's rather like that loony cartoon, the, the simulacrum of the father and son watching the sunrise on television when outside the window the real sun is rising. <laughs> so that I think if we're trying to say where, where is loneliness coming from, I think there's part of social media that are not real relationships. These are artifactual, they're superficial, they're often banal. Um, and therefore I, I think that when you come back to your original question, where, where may things have gone wrong, it may well have been that we've moved away from the sort of collectivism and its type of socialisation to other aspects of socialisation which are artifices and artifactual and don't have much meaning. Yes, and, and, and are not necessarily there when people really need them. Yeah. So the, the, times in, the times in people's lives which they need more acutely the help and support of other people are not ones that those social media connections yes. can, can fulfil. And we can come back to that earlier issue of if, if there has been a true increase in depression, and I largely suggest that it hasn't been a true increase but it's been artifactual. If we look at rates of depression in China 50 or 60 years ago, they were absolutely minimal. And, of course, if you said you had depression, Chairman Mao would probably send you off to, uh, <laughs> to make you somewhere to while. make you really depressed. But they have gone up um, <laughs> excessively. And you can look at rates of depression in Chinese people who migrate to Western countries. And by and large, the Chinese people actually still have lower rates of depression than most other groups because they have a whole set of values. One is that there's something bigger in life than you. So they have a collectivistic mm -hmm. culture rather than individualistic one. They believe in destiny and fate. They believe in fortitude and so on and so forth. And these values that have changed so rapidly in China and where we've seen the rates of depression, including that dreadful clinical depression, uh, increase, 
I think can be tied in, and I think they do link in with the concept of loneliness, and also the whole other side of the literature, which is the well-being literature. Mm. And just so I make one final comment, the other side of looking at David's uh, data are that if we look at rates of well-being over the last four decades, in not one country of the world have rates of well-being increased. They've either stayed the same or they've actually decreased. And in fact, they have decreased most distinctly for women than for men. And the general suggestion is that women now have many more requirements. They're required to be a mother, um, a wife, to have a job, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think the well-being aspect is as equally relevant to depression as it is to loneliness. Mm. And I mean, I think having a conversation like this is really about, uh, you know, one side of it is, is talking about depression and loneliness, but it's really about saying, if as a society we want to be a society where people have good rates of well-being and potentially increasing rates of well-being, um, how do we achieve that? What are the causes of depression and loneliness that are the result of the kind of lives we lead and how do we identify those and what we do about them? What do we do about them? I think the biggest factor that comes through in the well-being literature is that uh, we have been increasingly encouraged to the view that we should chase happiness. Um, and happiness and well-being need to be distinguished. Happiness is best defined as a brief, ephemeral, temporary event, you know, the wallabies somehow or other win, um, and you feel happy. Um, and so it's very transient, and it's not very important. Uh, it has no effect on, on your longevity. Well-being does. If you're high on well-being, you live another 10 years. And there are a few key components to well-being. One is this issue of materialism. So we are increasingly encouraged by the advertising industry that we are failures unless we have this special watch and that we're falling behind. And we are increasingly encouraging by the advertising industry and particularly we're seeing it in our kids that we're falling behind unless we get this and that and this and that and so on and so forth. And that materialistic <laughs> pursuit is in fact counterproductive. You cannot chase well-being. It's a journey that should be engaged in. And it's the journey that's more important than the goal. Because our senses get quickly sated with materialistic uh, achievements. And so if you, if you look at you know, well-being is defined by Aristotle uh, through to all the religions in the world. Um, basically, there are a whole series of things that constitute well-being. That is, to be well socialised, to find uh, a higher meaning in life than oneself. Um, and there was a wonderful um, inscription on Egyptian portals for people who were about to leave this life. And there were two questions. Did you have joy in your life? And the other one was, did you give joy in your life? And by and large, um, is, is, again, as Aristotle said, that happiness comes more from giving rather than from receiving. So I think if we try to bring all these issues together, then the, the issue of enhancing well-being ties in very much with loneliness and with rates of depression mm. in that non-clinical sense. Yes. And um, if we look at the causes of loneliness um, are the ones, ones that we can identify um, and potentially what, what there are as remedies for those. Um, you know, one of the most immediate things is, is the um, changing social structures that mean fewer relationships but also the more temporary nature of relationships. 
What are, the, what, are, what are the things that are driving that and what do you think we can do about those issues? David. Well, um, that's a good point. Um, Zygmunt Bauman talks about the liquidity of, uh, of modern society where people, you know, tap in when they, when they need a fix of, uh, you know, friendship and then they tap out and they log in and they log out and that sort of thing. But it goes to you're, you're determining uh, the, the boundaries um, of your world, like I referred to before. And so you can control how big your world is, which puts limits on it. And if, you're, if you find that your world's shrinking and you're becoming lonelier, then your worldview becomes smaller. Whereas if, if you're not feeling lonely and you're confident, then your worldview can get a little bit bigger. And it's, it's, that, uh, it's that, I guess, that conflict between a small world and a big world that is one of the areas where we can address the issue of loneliness or I'd look at ways, at least, in how it might be exploited. Mm. Anne? Well, I really... I think it's not... I think it's connected to what Gordon um, mm. uh, was saying. And certainly in all the work on narcissism, it's, it's really clear that... Uh, Materialism is a very—it's a very strong. You know, when people are um, higher in narcissism, they become more materialistic. There's also true that the society is encouraging us to be so and to pursue a certain sort of lifestyle. Even now, goods are distinguishing themselves. You know, the, the advertisers use identity and a sense of identity. Often, if you look at an advertisement, you can't even work out what they're selling <laughs> until the very end, and they have the product because they're really selling a sense of yourself. And, you know, the flip side of that, the dark side of that, is, you know, going onto Facebook and thinking that other people have the life that you ought to be living. There's a, a, a really strong shaming thing, I think, mm. running through mm. all of this. And I think that is connected to perhaps the milder end of depression, but um, to loneliness. And there's tremendous shame in being alone in a world that's supposed to be wired and having multiple Facebook friends and all the rest of it, the quantity rather than the quality. Um, when you think about how, what a thin relationship Facebook really is, um, how cheap liking something um, is. Um, I, I admit to being what I call a passive lurker on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and I very gingerly like something, but also notice it came kind of obligation um, very quickly, you know, to make sure I'd done my duty to <laughs> like people. So it was such a thin um, a form of... And, you know, people are seeing themselves liked or not liked um, and how many and counting. So that this is a very shaming experience potentially mm. for people. Um, mm. Material possessions, you know, that uh, Gordon's absolutely right. Every bit of evidence in the Australian Institute has been absolutely brilliant in bringing it to our attention in a public way that all the work on wellbeing shows that you get, you know, poverty is bad, okay, we know that. It's, it's crummy from the point of view of the poor person and it's poor, crummy from the point of view of um, the society which is immersed in poverty. But once you get to a certain fairly middling sort of, you know, medium, you know, a, a mediocre level... Um, Dan Danny Kahneman quantified it in 1999 as $10,000 in the US community. Once you went above $10,000, there was no increase in wellbeing. Yeah. Which, which well, I think it's gone up to about seven. That 10 now equals about 70. <laughs> which, would take, <laughs> which would take the pressure off all of us. Because, in fact, I think that the um, loneliness, uh, depression, disconnection, um, loss, all of those things is uh, connected with... Um, uh, Hugh Mackay was very good on this. He says, you know, how are you busy? 
how are you busy? It's not even how are you. You have just all run together in one word. How are you busy? You know, and <laughs> there's something terribly. I mean, boy, is it shaming to say you're not busy. You know, you're retired. Have it, has anyone ever spoken to someone recently who is retired? Who's just recently retired? And this punishing round of <laughs> exhausting number of activities and hobbies and things that they have to proffer, because in essence. If you are a busy person, then you are one of those for whom time is money. And that's the question, you know. So you're like, we are all starting to inhabit the world of the 1950s CEO businessman for whom time <laughs> was money. And, but we are meant to be, you know, that you're too busy to do this, you're too busy to do that. And as we rush past each other with the two-income family and all the rest of it, um, it you know, we are, we are not seeing each other, we're not stopping, we're not... Um, no, no it, I, I have a friend... Um, Raymond Gator, who's a philosopher, um, uh, he, by the way, was a friend who said the vices and the, the, oh, the really? virtues, yeah. Um, but he, um, he will say, how are you? Instead of how are you? It's, it's a lilt. To the, he actually wants to know the answer. <laughs> so you actually Somebody who say, can listen. And I always find I tell him truthfully how I am. Whereas for most of us, we go... You know, fine, fine, busy, busy. That's right. And you'll notice you go to shops now and you buy something and they'll say, how are you? Hey, awesome? Or, you know, the, <laughs> you mean to say awesome? I'm awesome, you know? Or you buy something and they say beautiful, you know, sort of, sort of up there. When this is, of course, a great disparity. At one point I went into a shop. All right, it was Christmas. I've done a lot of Christmas shopping. It was not good for my, my temper. So... Uh, you know, women and Christmas shopping now, there's a whole story. There should be an essay on that. But there was um, so many people who asked me this question, how am I? I got to one shop and it is true that she guided me to the largest section of the clothing, which was, that was not helpful. So <laughs> when she said, how are you, you know, when I was signing something, I actually gave her an answer. I said, actually, my mother has shingles, which is a... An ugly disease with pustules. I went through it. <laughs> the look of blanching horror on her face as I actually answered the question in a real and true way. But what I'm getting at is this extremely superficial, air-kissing, rushing past, busy, busy, busy. You know, it's not a way to foster connection, which is what people... And, the, you know, so many people, even that the, the woman I began with who, who, you know, burst into tears when I started talking about my ankle... Um, she needed someone to say, how are you? Mm. you know, how are and you? listen to the answer. And listen. Yeah. That, that relates to one of the strategies with the, the slow movement that Carl Honoré introduced initially for eating, that, you know, instead yes. of rushing mm. through our food, we eat slowly. But Clive Hamilton in Australia did an interesting study looking at people who'd retired and downsized. And the people actually who downsized were usually gone from big houses in Melbourne to some sort of terrible home unit in surface paradise and don't know anybody and they're depressed as whatever. But he found that <laughs> only 10% of people who downsized actually felt they were worse off. Mm -hmm. the, the great majority of people said, I've got less money available, but I'm actually uh, feeling better. So well-being uh, does relate very much to this issue of rush versus uh, the slow movement. Mm. Now, we've got some time for questions and discussion from you. There are two microphones. Do come to one of those well, microphones while, while, with a question. Um, while we're finding a microphone, yes. can I just say about Carl and Ore and I, um, <laughs> the two critics of busyness, we like each other's work, but do you know what? We were too busy to meet when he came to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it was just an just an air kiss, was it, as you passed by? No, no, no. He, now he we know you're a, really important. He man. was in a plane in, on the way to London, sending me. Emails. I was on a plane somewhere. I mean, it was yeah. <laughs> Happens to all of us. Um, if we have known since Aristotle uh, what makes us, what makes uh, a life uh, a worthwhile life and a life full of well-being. If we have known, we've had that information, even if we've spent a couple of thousand years assuming that religions were only telling us that for their own interests. Um, if we've had that knowledge, but we live as we do in a society that encourages us in the opposite direction. So, you know, th this research about what, what underpins well-being, about community, real relationships, meaning and purpose, um, and the ability to be grateful and satisfied, uh, you know, to have a, a level of material needs met and to be grateful and satisfied. But we live in a society where everything that we're exposed to is sending us in the opposite direction. How do... What are some practical ways that people can try... Um, you know, at a level of policy or at a level of individual behaviour, at any kind of part in this process, what are things that you think could help us to, you know, go against those social forces or change things in our own lives or, or in lives of our communities? I think there are a few things, and I won't speak for too long here, but Seligman has come up with a hierarchy. And so, uh, for instance, part of his hierarchy is looking at work and basically... Well, the broad hierarchy is either you can have a pleasant life or you can have a good life or a meaningful life. So in regard to work, having a job is better than not having a job. Uh, having a career is better than having a job. And having um, an area that you work in involving altruism is even higher. So I, I think the first thing is we should say, where are we now and can we set ourselves further up the hierarchy? Secondly, how can we improve our level of socialisation? Coming back to Aristotle's summary quote that happiness is the consequence of a deed that underlies all the uh, social manifestos, manifestos about well-being that in fact we should be more thinking about how we can give uh, rather than than receive um, they I think are the the principal components uh, slowing down uh, optimization uh, is another one that is setting goals for yourself that take you forward, ones that you, you set for yourself and you're likely to achieve, not too hard that you will fail and not too simple that they will bore you. And the other aspect is how you view the world and that can be changed. So Viktor Frankl, the amazing psychiatrist who was in Auschwitz and saw the most horrible things, came out of that camp and said, best experience of my life. Now, there are people who, and, and the point I'm making here is this was a, an extraordinary human being. He looked at negative events and tried to find a positive spin. And, and we do that at times, particularly psychologists will say to patients, come back next week, bring back an exercise book, write down the good things in your life, write down the bad things. Once you get people looking at the positives and starting to think about the positives, simple and trite as that may seem, it does seem to help. Mm. And that's right, it's about uh, self-perceptions, about what you perceive. We, uh, the Institute did some um, research recently. We, looked, we asked people uh, what they thought the average income was uh, in brackets, and then later in the survey we asked what their income was, and it's 
There's a direct correlation between what you think is average and where you are actually at. And once once your world is uh, reinforcing your own position, then to move beyond that world is when you get a bigger worldview, and then you can start to see some of the things that Gordon's talked about, to yeah, move and, beyond and that, your own immediate world. And that, that, there's a technical term there called the relative consumption theory, and that is, uh, it's not the facts of how much you're earning, but if you think that you are falling behind, that's what drives you into unhappiness and loneliness. It's not the reality, it's the concept of how you're travelling relative to other people. So you need to get rid of that relative extrapolation. Question from here. My name is Anthony Brawl, and uh, we've heard quite a lot about depression and loneliness, and, um, but, the, but the title of the talk is the, the, the price of modern life is depression and loneliness. In other words, the way we live is causing... Is the way we live causing the depression and loneliness. A lot of people nowadays losing their jobs. And for them, when, you, when they lose their jobs, they lose their identity. And this surely leads to them, A, being lonely, not alone, but lonely. And because they've lost their identity, they don't know who yeah. they are, therefore they've, they get depression. I'm, I'm wondering if we, we could talk about that for a while. Uh, well, I... I, I think is a really good question um, and a very important point to raise because um, one of the aspects, you know, you're, you're, and you're asking what to challenge, um, I think overarching policies of neoliberalism have been unhelpful and I think that the... Uh, I, I heard about a story recently where um, some people at a university all had to apply for their jobs the next year so that they were in every year they were anxiously thinking about whether or not they would have a job. And then you're talking about, of course, you know, an incredible loss, anxiety over money, anxiety over who you are now, because, it, you know, that question of, who, you know, how are you busy? The other thing is, what do you do? You know, at the dinner party, it has to be always, you know, your identity is tied so much um, to paid work. Um, so I think that, you know, challenging the kind of idea that the only thing that matters is economic efficiency, um, or that somehow the penetration of the market into um, every single firm in a way that is quite ruthless into our um, institutions, into our social relationships. I thought Michael Sandel put this very well when he said that we cease to have a market and have sort of become a, a market um, society that it's penetrated too far. Um, and I'd just say particularly in relation to men, loneliness and depression, um, I think there's been quite a lot of work done of a very powerful and um, poignant kind looking at men who um, drop um, out of, almost out of society uh, and the um, rates of depression and loneliness amongst those yeah. um, is very high and quite unbearable because they don't perhaps have the network, social networks that women do. I'd agree entirely, and I think the best exemplar is really in Japan, where when people retired from their company, they would still go back each day and be regarded as part of the company <coughs> until they're in their 80s. Nowadays, mm. they're cut ruthlessly, and the escalating rate of suicide in Japan is way above all other countries, and the stories that are told about it, uh, because in Japan, you know, tying your identity with work is probably about as big as any other country. So I think your, your exemplar is an extremely important one. Mm. Next question. I'm Caroline Renko, and my question is basically like, is, um, are we better at treating depression in modern times than we were 
100, 200 years ago and what evidence do we have for that? <laughs> um, the evidence is non-existent. Um, Tony Jorm, uh, 20 years ago, did a study looking at the number of psychiatrists in Australia and the impact on, you know, rates of depression and treatment and so on. And there have been numerous studies of that nature. And there's just nothing going. Uh, so if you look at population levels, the impact of, and it's not just psychiatrists, psychologists, the whole mental health arena, it doesn't look very good. But when you bring it down to the individual level, if you talk to people with, say, melancholic depression, the biological depression, who've been put on an appropriate antidepressant where their lives have turned around or have a bipolar disorder and their lives turned around, at the individual level, it's an extremely impressive domain. And my personal view is that mood disorders is the most, most amenable one for benefit that we have in all of psychiatry. And I think the figure of being able to bring somebody out of a fair dinkum clinical depressive episode, not of this pseudo stuff, is around about 80%, and that's as good as anything in medicine. So I think we should feel encouraged. I think the rates are compromised if you have the wrong paradigm, if you give people medication where that's not the appropriate way to intervene, and the converse. That's what's bringing the numbers down. Yes. Um, <clears throat> hi. Um, I have a related question for Gordon. Um, I was... Um, recently diagnosed with depression um, and um, put on the drugs, which can I say were really good for me. Um, <laughs> I know you're supposed to be like anti-antidepressants, but I'm just kind of saying everyone should be on them, they're amazing. Um, <laughs> no, that'd be far too dangerous. <laughs> um, I guess I'm really interested in your, what you said about um, diagnosis and when you do go to a GP and say, look, I've been really depressed lately and yeah, they put you on the drugs or give yep. you to a counsellor. Um, how can they tell whether it's something in your brain that needs the drugs or if you just need to chat to someone? Is there a way of finding that out? Um, well, that's one of the great concerns in psychiatry. People keep being nihilistic and saying, we've got no laboratory tests, no benchmark tests, so we might as well give up. But in fact, in medicine, there are many exemplars um, that exactly represent that story. Parkinson's disease, there is no benchmark test, no laboratory test. It requires very careful consideration by a neurologist to say, is this Parkinson's or is this supranuclear palsy? So for melancholia, the biological depression, people lose the light in their eyes, they lose the resonance in their voice, and there are a whole series of clinical symptoms and signs that if people are trained in them, you can get just as good at getting a clinical diagnosis as getting a laboratory test as you would with neurology. So what I'm arguing for is a far more sophisticated way to approaching diagnosis and that we need to train practitioners and get away from this dumb American model that, that subtyping doesn't matter, that major depression is the whole story. That's where I think we're getting, going back to the sort of the dark ages. But I'm delighted to hear that you talked... I mean, there are two points. One is you, you talked about doing well with an antidepressant, that's great. But secondly, that you got up and talked about having depression and being treated. That sort of story would not have occurred 20 years ago, and it speaks to the destigmatization that we're seeing, and that's absolutely fantastic. Mm. I'm afraid we've run out of time for further questions, so I'm sorry about that. Before we go, I just want to ask each of our panelists, because we have, uh, we want to leave you feeling full of joy. <laughs> We want to leave the stage with the knowledge that we have provided joy. Um, 
I want to ask each of our panellists to tell us something that they, one of the things that they really enjoy about modern life. I, mean, I think we've been quite negative about materialism, about the diminution in the quality of human relationships um, and other aspects of it. What are the things about our era that you love and value? <laughs> Apart from Skype. Well, yeah. No, well, I love Skype because I've got a daughter who lives in America. Um, so I love that. I, I actually think... Um, we talked about the vices and the virtues. I, I think modern society has an incredible vivacity um, and vibrancy and uh, changeable and so on. Um, so that it's, you know, as soon as I walk down through Melbourne, I feel there's an aliveness to it. I, I live out in the country, um, so I come down and... Um, it's it's extremely kind of vivid experience, the absolute difference and diversity. But, uh, you know, one of the really terrific things, if you think back to the 1960s and some of those struggles, um, and this I just think we should feel such gratitude for, is um, there are two women on the panel for a start. Um, it would have been all blokes. Um, there is a much greater... Um, uh, in inclusiveness um, all round. There is um, an incredibly different attitude uh, to uh, people with a disability, not nearly far enough, I have to say. Um, the, the aspect of generosity which is involved in, you know, for example, the, the destigmatisation of mental illness has changed enormously. So in those kinds of ways, that we're now, um, you know, the, the, the way we think about gay marriage and the celebration of um, sex between uh, people of the same gender um, is, a, is a brilliant thing. So that, you know, I, I actually think that thing of the vices and the virtues is really quite, um, you know, uh, central to keep a hold of. Mm. Um, and it's those kinds of things when you think about um, the way we thought about people of, of a different race. Um, even the fact that in the 1950s people used to go to cinemas and cheer when... Um, you know, Indigenous people in America were, were, were shot and when they were, um, you know, the bow and... You know, there's something was so thoughtless, so careless, so um, privileged about the way we thought about many groups and that is not in, by any means entirely gone but it is breaking down um, and so that is surely something to <laughs> celebrate. Yes. David? Uh, yeah, I'm building on from what you said, Anne. It's the, the ability to step out of... Uh, gender roles and to do things differently. Uh, my wife and I both work part-time and we share responsibility for the kids and that option that you don't, as the male, you, you're not pressured into being a breadwinner but that you can make choices that revolve around your domestic life and that they're given value as well. Mm. Gordon? I think um, the modern components add only about 10%. I'm not a Freudian but Freud was asked for a definition of mental health and he said to love and to work. And what he meant by that was not to be in love, infatuated, but to be in a good, meaningful relationship. And to work didn't just mean having a job. It meant that you had a job that provided meaning. And I think they, and part of the collectivist society components, I think they make up for 90% of what builds to, you know, sort of a meaningful life. And then I think we have the, 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 the secular issues, the, the ones that Anne has highlighted. I would certainly, again, emphasise... I mean, the difference when I was growing up between girls and boys, it was very hierarchical. I think we're seeing much greater parity. And again, there have been so many liberation movements that are really encouraging, and we're seeing so much of that, and I'd agree entirely. I think they are all the important markers, even though when we see, as we do every night, 
you know, the, the, the stories about the exploitation in churches, they are harrowing. The end point of this process will be of, of great benefit. But they, I think, only about 10%. But there'd be another bonus 5% if the Wallabies could eventually win. <laughs> Before you join me in thanking our panellists, um, uh, they'll be signing books in the foyer after this event. Um, I hope to see you again throughout the afternoon. Um, but please join me in thanking for these uh, wonderful contributors. <laughs> <laughs>